What a powerful statement of the Lord, wanting to leave absolutely no doubt, as if His Word is not good enough just to say that He has granted to us His covenant. He goes so far beyond, so far out of His way. In the Old Testament, He makes an oath to Abraham. In the New Testament, He gives us His Son and gives us this sure and steady anchor of the soul. As such vivid imagery, and it talks about that anchor for our soul, like a, our lives are a ship tossed by winds and waves and external pressures that come against us throughout our days, throughout our life, and pound us or pull us or tug us this direction or that, trying to get us to move away from our confident assurance, not only in Christ and the gospel, but in His Word. And yet God has given us His promises in such a way that we should never be discouraged that in some way He has let us down or that He ever would. We call this doctrine assurance. It's what God intends us to live with. We, we are intended to live our life with this kind of confidence at all times. He wants us to know that we are saved. He wants us to know with no shadow of a doubt that He loves us. He wants us to never, ever doubt that. If you imagine in your mind that God plays games with you so that at times He wants you to be fearful and He wants you to doubt, then you misunderstand the gospel. And you misunderstand the work of Christ. And you misunderstand what God wants for you. He wants your assurance. In fact, the writer of Hebrews goes on later and says, Let us draw near with a true heart full of assurance. Colossians 2.2 describes it as our, our need to gain or attain to all the riches of full assurance. So this is what God wants us to live in. He wants us to live in the kind of riches of this full assurance. That's His design for Christians. Not that we live a life constantly buffeted by doubts and fears and dismay. Not crouching always in the corner, wondering and fearing whether or not God really wants us near Him. Not constantly questioning whether we should be bold to go to Him in prayer. Not constantly fretting that somehow He has cast us aside or forgotten about us but being confident that you belong securely to God, that you have eternal life, that you have the kind of joy that comes along with that. All that is necessary, all of that, I should say, is necessary for what the Hebrews writer calls the full assurance of salvation and the full joy of living for God's glory. People lose that sometimes. They go through seasons where their assurance vanishes, they lose their confidence, they lose their sense of joy and salvation, they lose their eagerness to approach God, and in place of the confidence comes a dark kind of doubt, a fear, an anxiety over their future, over God's goodness to them. There's all kinds of things that happen that create that. Sin in your life certainly does that. When you have unconfessed and unrepented sin just ongoing, you need to find a pathway to repentance. 
to find your way back to this, kinds of com- uh, this kind of confidence. Legalism can do this, where people are always uh, struggling with fears and doubts about you know, failing to meet some standard that's been set up by people. Strong preaching sometimes can do this, where you just sit under preaching that brings uh, a conviction to your conscience and to and a stirring in your heart. But one of the things that frequently brings this kind of doubt and anxiety and causes people to, to shrink back from their confidence, one of the things that does this as often as any is just simply difficult circumstances. Hardships, misfortunes, trials, tribulations, suffering. All of that begins to to make you wonder whether or not God has abandoned you. You see the difficulties come into your home or into your school or into your workplace or into your body even, your health. You see those things happening and, and your reflex is to shrink back from your confidence that somehow God has intended His goodness for you. You begin to question whether God really loves you after all, you begin to wonder whether or not all this stuff was really even in your, just in your head. And you're seized by a lack of confidence and assurance. Well, we've been studying this book of Second Thessalonians for the last month or so. A couple months, I should say. And, and we've been studying this group of people for whom this has happened in the worst kind of way. They have lost their assurance and they have reached a place where their confidence in God and their confidence in salvation has been enormously shaken. And it came as a result of the manipulative tactics of some false teachers who forged a false letter and led these believers to think that Christ had already returned And that the day of the Lord had been initiated and they were essentially left behind. It left them shaken because they had been taught that they would be spared from the wrath of God. They had been taught that they would be spared from the day of the Lord. They had been taught that that, that before all of that stuff unfolded, they would be caught up together in the clouds with Christ. And they were taught, even in 1 Thessalonians, they were taught to comfort themselves with the idea of Christ's return. Not to fear for, for all the difficulties that were, going to be, that were going to be spread throughout all the face of the earth. And this is what really disturbed them. Because they understood what the day of the Lord was. The day of the Lord is the day of judgment. The day of the Lord is a day of gloom. The day of the Lord is a dark and, and uh, uh, difficult day that he... That is, God will cast over all the earth, bringing His judgment against it. They understood all of those things. And they had been taught they would be spared from it. Now they get a letter saying that not only had they missed the return of Christ, but the day of the Lord had arrived. And they were uh, about to experience all of these awful, awful things. And it shook their faith. It struck a blow to their confidence. They wondered, because of this, whether they still belonged to Christ, whether their salvation was secure. But as we see today, Paul, he goes to instruct them, correct them, bring them back in line with what he had originally taught them. 
He goes to do all that, but he not only gives the corrective information, but he makes sure that he rounds it out with strong affirmations of their salvation, their election, their need to have confidence and assurance in those facts. You remember, we, we've kind of been going through this and following a little bit of an outline that, that gives and breaks down all of Paul's explanations, if you will, into some different categories. We saw beginning in verses 1 and 2, the distress of these Thessalonians when, when Paul says, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to Him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter, seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. This is, this is why they were disturbed. They were disturbed because they got this letter that, that was a pseudo letter as if it had come from Paul. And Paul uses that and, and from that launches then into a series of explanations about why this couldn't be. Why it would be impossible for such a thing to happen because of all of the things involved with the day of the Lord which are not happening. Or they could just look around and see all the evidences. And he begins in verses 3 through 5 with a description of the Antichrist. The one who he says is coming as the man of lawlessness. He says the day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed. The son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God and object of worship. So that... He takes his seat in the temple of God, which is in Jerusalem, and proclaims himself to be God. Paul says, don't you remember, this is exactly what I told you. And this is, this has come straight out of Daniel. This comes straight out of the Old Testament. This is the abomination of desolation. This is when this, this, uh, this maniac person goes into the temple, desecrates the temple, sets himself up as an object of worship, and opposes every other thing that's to be worshipped. He is opposed to God, to Christ, and to everything about Christianity. He is, as we came, come to know him later on, he is the, the Antichrist. He is against Christ, he wants to replace Christ. Paul mentions in verses 6 and 7 that he's now being restrained. And they know what's restraining him. And we mentioned that this, of course, was the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit who's restraining him in verse 7. Even now restraining the mystery of lawlessness, which is also at work. There's a principle of lawlessness which he will embody. But a principle that's already at work in the world and it's getting worse and worse. But Paul says even that's being restrained. But there's coming a time when it will no longer be restrained. When the lid's going to be taken off and, and, and the Antichrist carries out his destructive forces. And this is what Paul describes in verses 8 through 12. First of all, noting that the Lord Jesus will kill this lawlessness, lawless one with the breath of his mouth, bringing him to nothing by the appearance of his coming in the sense of just quickly, suddenly, effortlessly, as soon as Christ appears at the end of this time of tribulation, he will slaughter this this man who has set himself up against Christ. And in verse 5, 
He elaborates on his career. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so to be saved. This guy comes with superhuman powers, satanically endowed power so that he performs signs and wonders and people are astonished, but they are also duped, which he mentions there at the end of verse 10 and verses 11 and 12, they refused to love the truth so as to be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Paul's just describing what it's going to be like at the end. This is all this stuff that's taking place around us. It's going to be radical. I mean, the entire world is going to be like this. They will have rejected the truth so many times. They will have turned a deaf ear to the truth so many times. They no longer can even discern truth any longer. They no longer can distinguish truth from a lie any longer. They're they're defenseless. They are exposed. They are helpless against the lies and the deceptions of this Antichrist. And he just simply devours them. They're perishing. Not only will they perish... But they are perishing in the sense that they are facing their judgment even at that time under the destructive forces of the Antichrist. And God, as an act of judgment, He sends a strong delusion on them. He takes their rejection and He deepens and solidifies it. All of this, all of this that Paul's describing is a, is a description of the, the career and the effect of the Antichrist in his day to perishing people, to people who are caught up in the lies of the Antichrist, people who refuse the love of the truth so as to be saved. And so they face the day of wrath, they face the day of the Lord. But Paul's message doesn't end there. Because after saying all of that, after describing all of that, he wants to remind these believers that all of that does not describe you. That is not you. You are not those who refuse the love of the truth. You are not those who are perishing. You are not those who are going to be subjected to this kind of deception and destruction. And that's why... You'll notice in verse 13, Paul transitions or pivots and, and begins to talk then about the deliverance of the elect. He says, by way of contrast, but we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you. As the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this He called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now this, this goes right along with everything else that Paul's saying. Trying to assure them that they are not in the day of the Lord. He's trying to assure them that they are not in the day of the Lord. And the reason or the way he does it is by reminding them of their election. By implication, 
The elect are not intended for this. He was telling them that the lawless one, the Antichrist, he'll be easily recognizable when he comes. He'll be easily seen by the kind of works that he does, but he never implies that they will be there to see it because they have been chosen to be saved. They have been chosen to be delivered. Now this is another assurance, but just from a different angle. This is approaching it from a different aspect. This is comforting their hearts, not with the details of how, how all this stuff will unfold in the end, but with the details of how things have been predetermined for believers. And so beginning there in verse 13, Paul says, look, I am so grateful. I ought always to give thanks. We can't give enough thanks. We couldn't be thankful for what's going to happen with the Antichrist and all of his deception and all the perishing people. That's not what we're grateful for. But when it comes to you, in light of everything that God has done, when it comes to you, we ought to be grateful for God's love and God's mercy in your life. And specifically, we're grateful, he says, because God chose you as the firstfruits. To be saved through sanctification of the spirit and belief in the truth. He's no longer giving them evidence that the day of the Lord hasn't come by what has gone on around them. But he's giving them evidence of why they won't have to endure it. This is assurance. He wants to assure them, restore their confidence in God's election. This this directly responds back to verse 2 where he talks about their confidence being shaken. And now he wants to strengthen them. And so he reminds them of these important truths. Several things about their salvation. All of it pointing to the unfading and unchanging love and plan of God for their salvation. First of all, the fact that God chose them. He chose them for mercy. He chose them for salvation. He chose them for glory. As Paul says in Romans chapter 8, he predestined us or, or chose us. To be conformed to the image of his son. Which is the ultimate purpose Paul gets to at the end of verse 14 here. God chose us to obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. But before he gets there, he kind of piles in all of these phrases and clauses to build this entire picture of what God has given to us as an an act or as an evidence of assurance. It's a little bit like Romans 8, which gives this chain of salvation. Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. In order that they might be firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he called. And those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he glorified. And all of those things are like a complete whole. The entire picture. A combined package. It's not like, you know, you go buy your automobile and, and you say, well, you know, I want it, but I want this package. You know, I want the navigation package. I want the comfort package. I want the security package. I want the, you know, uh, whatever, the heated seats and the moonroof and all those. That's not the way salvation, you don't come to God and say, you know what? I like, I like it as a whole, but I kind of don't want this and I don't want that. No, it comes as a package. A whole 
And when God delivers you, first of all, with his predestination or or with his foreknowledge, just, which really just speaks about his, his forecommitment to you. Knowledge in, in the Old Testament and the New Testament is a word really of intimate love. He, he commits intimate love to you beforehand. And when he does that, it is as good as if you are in heaven right now. It is as sure and as guaranteed as if you're in heaven right now. Well, Paul is giving them these same kind of inseparable truths. First of all, he calls them right there in verse 13, beloved by God. Those who God has set his love upon. Very similar to the way he addressed them in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 4. We know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. This idea of God's love is typically married together with the idea of God's electing work or His predestining work, His sovereign choice of us. Ephesians 1, in love He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will. That's the kind of language Paul uses in many passages when he's talking about this electing sovereign work of God. He connects This idea of love. That's the only explanation there is for it. That's the only explanation. You might say, well, he chooses us because we first chose him. I mean, that's why he chooses us. That's where the election comes from. Well, that's not what scripture says. It's not the way love works. In fact, 1 John says in chapter, chapter 4, verse 10, In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us. And sent his son to be a propitiation for our sin. You want to understand love? This is how you understand this. You want to understand God's love? This is how you understand God's love. It wasn't that God looked at you and realized that you love him. It's that he loved you. And he sent his son. Much like Romans says. Romans says even while we were still sinners. Enemies with God. He sent his only son to be propitiation for our sins. 1 John 4.19 is even more clear. We love because He first loved us. Which one is the initiating love? Which one is the primal cause? It's nothing in us. Nothing in our love. It is His love. It's the only explanation. And that's why Paul says, look, he wants to remind them, you are beloved of God. You are beloved of God. And we ought to give thanks then, knowing that you're loved, because God chose you as a kind of first fruits. There's a debate, by the way, in the text. If you have a New American Standard, it doesn't say first fruits. I think it says from the beginning, because there are actually two different families, if you will. Uh, of, of ancient texts, two different words in the text that are found in very, very old manuscripts, the oldest manuscripts that we really have. And you have both of these words. 
And some of them have first fruits and some of them have from the beginning. And so it's a, it's a, it's a challenge for Bible translators to know which word to use. They're both spelled very similarly. And so it would make sense why perhaps a, a scribe somewhere along the way might have made a mistake and, and miswrote one of the words. But uh, people have noted that, that the, the terminology first fruits is a, a more common word for the Apostle Paul himself. He uses it not only in other passages of Scripture, but particularly even in passages of Scripture talking about predestination. And so it would, be, it would be appropriate to think that Paul would use that word here, whereas the other one, from the beginning, is a phrase that isn't found anywhere else in the writings of Paul. And so it's led the translators of the ESV to go with the word firstfruits. Neither one of them really changes the meaning. God certainly chooses us from the foundation of the world, as Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1. But what Paul is saying here, I believe, is that they have been chosen as the first ones in Thessalonica, much like he uses the word to speak about Eponidas in Asia or Stephanus in Achaia. Both of those men he called firstfruits. And now he's saying God has chosen you as the first fruits, those who were first to come to know Christ in Macedonia, just as he told him in 1 Thessalonians. And then because of that, from you has sounded forth throughout all of Macedonia and Achaia, the word of God. So he says, we ought to give thanks for this. We ought to give thanks that God chose you. He chose you as first fruits to be saved, to be rescued, to be delivered. And he's already begun that work in your life. He's already begun that saving work. That's what Paul means when he says, or when he adds that phrase, to be saved through the sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. We're saved. It's a salvation which comes to us and certainly secures for us our eternal hope. But it's a salvation that comes through us even now through The sanctifying work of the Spirit and the truth. Those two necessary functions that take place in our hearts and minds for salvation to be effective. God chose us, but He didn't just choose us. He did more than that. He sends His Holy Spirit into our hearts if we're truly His. If we are Christians... He pours out His Holy Spirit in our hearts, Romans 5 says. It's shed abroad in our hearts. or His love is shed abroad by the Spirit. As a result, Jeremiah says we have a new heart. Ezekiel says that God takes our heart of stone and gives us a heart of flesh. In other words, God has no intention of taking stony-hearted people to heaven. God has no intention of dragging people to heaven, kicking and screaming, who have no desire to be around Him, no desire to hear His Word, no desire to obey Him. He has no intention of doing anything like that. God would never take someone to heaven to be with Him forever who wants to have nothing to do with Him right now. And so for salvation to be salvation, it takes effect even now. 
It takes effect even now by the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. God pours out his Holy Spirit in your heart if you're truly his. And when that happens, as Paul says, you become a new creature in Christ. Old things pass away. All things become new. And you are, as Paul uses the word here, sanctified. That's just a fancy word for saying that you are set apart or or, or dedicated to God. You're no longer dedicated to your career. You're no longer dedicated to your family. You're no longer dedicated to, to yourself. According to Jesus, you have to love him above all of those things. You love Christ supremely. You're dedicated to him. You're sanctified. And so Paul's saying, look, you're you're saved through the sanctification by the Spirit and the belief in the truth, which is the other function that has to take place in your heart for salvation to be effective. You have to reach the place where you believe the truth. You have to. There's no such thing as someone who's saved but doesn't believe the truth. To receive the Holy Spirit and to believe the truth are the definitions of a Christian. You can't say, you know, I I like all the things I hear about heaven. I like all the stuff that I read about that, but I don't necessarily like the stuff I read in the Word of God. It's not, not, not my cup of tea. Well, it doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. For you to be saved is for you to believe the truth. For you to be saved is for you to love the truth. You'd never find a true Christian who doesn't have an ear for the word of God. That's why Jesus says, look, my sheep hear my voice and they answer when I call. That's how you can tell a true Christian. You open up the Word of God, you set the Word of God in front of a true Christian, and what happens? They respond to it. It speaks to their inner man in a way that's compelling. And though we don't all follow it perfectly, and though we all are struggling with our ongoing weaknesses, our bent and our commitment is to do the Word of God in our life. We have a belief in the Word of God. And if you don't have a belief in the Word of God, then you don't belong to Him. This is why Jesus says, if you love me, you'll do what? You'll keep my commandments. You'll keep my commandments. So all of these things are part of our, our ongoing salvation. God, God has saved us. He's chosen us. And He's delivered us. And the evidences of that is a new life and a new attitude towards the Word of God. Now, now this, in verse 14, Paul says, to this he called you through our gospel. This is the way, this is the means, if you will, of how God works all this out. There's, there's a call. Now, Paul's not talking about the external call. He wasn't just simply talking about the the, the invitation that might be given at a preaching event. He is talking about his preaching. That's why he refers to it as our gospel. He is talking about that time historically whenever he entered into the city of Thessalonica and he stood up in the synagogues and the various places and he preached the gospel. 
He is talking about that event, but he's not talking about that external call. He's talking about the internal call. The fact that some people hear that kind of preaching and they respond to it because there's something at work in their hearts. In their hearts, there's a stirring by the Holy Spirit. And it's the internal call of God. That's why you can have some people listen to preaching And some people feel very, very moved, very compelled by it. And there are other people who listen to it and they say, that was just a bunch of hogwash. Foolishness. Moronic kind of talk. That's drab stuff. I mean, who in the world could follow something like that? You have people who respond to preaching that way and sitting right at the other end of the row from them is someone in tears. And they're in tears not because of the preacher and not because of the presentation. They're in tears because of the internal call of God. Because he's used that preaching event. Or Let's take it out of the pulpit. You have someone on a train. You have someone on a bus. You have someone on a sidewalk somewhere. And they're hearing the external call of God. And God uses it to, to issue his internal call. And they're saved. They're saved. Paul says to the Thessalonians, this is what happened to you. You heard this internal call from our external preaching. And God chose you among all those in Macedonia as kind of a first fruits. So that ultimately you would obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the ultimate purpose. To bring you to glory. The ultimate goal is that you would obtain the glory of Christ. What does that mean? What does it mean to obtain or to have the glory of Christ? Well, it just simply means that you're conformed to His image. That you're transformed into the glory of Christ. As as John says, when we see Him, we will be like Him. When He returns... We are immediately transformed into the likeness of Christ for all eternity. This is what God has determined. This is what He planned. He chose you, not primarily for you, not primarily so that you could have your own delights and your own sort of enjoyments. He chose you so that He could transform you. Into the image of Christ. He chose you so that he could create Christ worshipers. That's his ultimate purpose. Now, that all that begs the question. Do you think. Do you think. That he will suddenly. Abandon that purpose. Do you think that somewhere along the way. That God will say, you know, these Christians are just difficult people to deal with. And you know, the goal of producing worshipers of Christ is is just hard. And and honestly, it's just not worth it. I think I'm going to give up. Can you imagine, in light of God's love for Christ, in light of His His affection and his commitment to Christ. Can you imagine him giving up on the goal of 
bringing his children into conformity with Christ so that they worship Christ for all eternity. I couldn't imagine that. I couldn't imagine that. It's never going to happen. No one is ever going to be left out. If God predestines you, he predestines you all the way to the end. To the end when he glorifies you in Christ. This is what Romans is all about. If he foreknew you, he predestined you. If he predestined you, he, he justified you, he sanctified you, and he glorifies you. He calls you and brings you to glory. So no one's going to fall through the cracks because honestly there are no cracks to fall through. This, this redeeming love of God is perfect. It's complete. There aren't any holes. There aren't any escape hatches. There aren't any windows there aren't to, 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 to leap out of or fall out of. There's nothing. If he chooses you, he is going to do it. <clears throat> or as Paul says in, in uh, Philippians Chapter 1, he will complete the work that he began in you. Now, with all of this assurance, there's no way that these believers should be doubting what will happen to them. There's no way that these Thessalonians should be doubting. They don't need to even look around to, to determine whether there's an Antichrist or not. They don't even need to look around to figure out whether or not, you know, this, this entire world is under the sway of this deceptive one. They don't need to look. All they need to do is look at the gospel. And the gospel should assure them enough that God is not going to forget them. That he wouldn't allow them to go through that. As, as Paul says in, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, that he has not destined them for the day of wrath, but he will rescue them. And that's why Paul, after giving all of these words of assurance and the deliverance that is certainly ours, he He then moves to his final point, which in verses 15 through 17 is the determination then of the faithful. So then, brothers, stand firm. Hold on to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by spoken word or by our letter. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Paul says, look, I've given you all these, all these reminders of your salvation and, and, and the assurance of it. So based on that, don't waver. Don't, don't buckle. Don't be doubtful. Don't be quickly shaken. Don't be insecure. Don't give up your ground. Don't let go of the traditions The ones that you've been taught. And don't get caught up on that word. Sometimes we use traditions in a negative sense. When it refers to maybe the opinions. Or the preferences. Of of some person. Or some group. Sort of the idiosyncrasies. Of how one group or subgroups. Enjoys doing something. Or prefers to do something. And those traditions are based on nothing but. Human preferences and human opinions. There should be no undue loyalty to them. In fact, many times we're commanded that we are to abandon those kinds of traditions. Colossians 2.8 says, see that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition. According to the elemental principles of the world and not according to Christ. Paul's not talking about that. He's not talking about those human traditions. 
What he's talking about are the traditions that come by divine revelation. They come by means of his authoritative spokesmen, his apostles and his prophets. And they were the very things that formed the foundation of the church before the New Testament was penned or even while it was being penned for the first 30 years or so of the church from the time Christ died in 33 AD until uh, when the final books of the New Testament were written, things were established in the church orally by the passing along of the apostles who were still present and active and alive in the church. And so Paul wants them to hold fast to those things, those things which they heard orally or those things that have even been written in the early New Testament books. He includes both of them here. He says, the things that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word, that is when we were with you, or by our letter. So whatever God has passed down to you through the apostles, whether orally or written, that is your authoritative tradition. That is your authoritative teaching. Now, by the way, we don't go beyond that. It's not like they gave us their tradition and then we add to it our traditions and you add to it more traditions. You add to it more traditions until you have 2,000 years of traditions that are passed down from generation to generation in the church. That, that is essentially what you have in the magisterium, which is that body of traditions that governs the Catholic Church and overrules even its scripture. Now, Paul's not talking about traditions that come from men. He's talking about traditions which come from divine revelation. Those are the things that you're to hold to. They had it in a letter from 1 Thessalonians, and they had it from Paul's own lips. And so when this other letter floated in, and said something different than what they heard from Scripture, they were to recognize that. They were to see that and discard that. They were to recognize that and hold fast to the Word of God. Hold firm to the traditions that come to you by apostolic teaching. And don't listen to the other stuff. And then Paul gives a kind of a prayer that God might help them to do all of that. In verse 16, may God, excuse me, may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who, very interesting there, he uses a singular, who, uh, even though he mentions the Lord Jesus Christ and God the Father, probably because he understood them to be one and the same. This is, this is our God, the Lord Jesus Christ and God the Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort. What is that? That is comfort that doesn't die. It doesn't fade away. It isn't here today and gone tomorrow. It is a a comfort that ought to last you through every single hour and day of your life. It's eternal comfort. And then good hope through grace. What is a good hope? Well, it's a well-founded hope. It's a sound hope. It's a hope that isn't flawed or faulty in some way. It is sound, intact, whole in its quality. It is a good hope. May the God, he says, who has given us eternal comfort 
and good hope through grace, may he then comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. This is the very same thing he just asked them to do, right? He told them to stand firm, and then he told them to hold fast to the the word that they had been taught. Well, here he understands that if that's going to happen, it's going to happen only because of God's continuing grace in their life. We have to have God working in us so that we stand our ground when it comes to the truth, when it comes to our faithfulness. It's kind of a virtuous cycle. God works within us so that we trust in His Word and in His works, so then He works in us. That's the way it works. So that all glory goes to God. All glory goes to God. Thankfully, we don't have to deal with this this doctrine that floated in by this letter, this idea that Christ has already returned. It's sometimes called preterism, full preterism, the idea that Christ has already come. We don't have to deal with that. It's been recognized soundly as a heresy within the church. But there are other things. There are other documents or other teachings that come our way and cause us to doubt the Word of God and doubt its truthfulness cause us to be shaken from our confidence in it, cause us to even doubt our own salvation. Paul says we shouldn't do that. We shouldn't do that. If God, who loved us, would give us His only Son, if God, who loved us, has already poured out His Holy Spirit in our hearts, has already transformed our lives He's already given us new eyes so that when we see the Word of God, we see it for what it is. He's already given us new ears so that when we hear the Word of God, we respond to it. If God has already done those very things and elected us for all eternity because of His love, then we need to hold fast to that. We need to stand secure in that. Knowing that He's predestined us, He's purposed us, that we might be conformed to the glory of His Son. Would you pray with me? Father, thank You so much for the assurances that You do give. They are eternal comfort. And we need them. We need them in the day-to-day life. The, The battles and the struggles to be sanctified in our walk with You, in our marriages, in our parenting. We need You, assuring us of your forgiveness and your cleansing and your renewal, assuring us of your love. Lord, I pray that you would wash over us with that in full measure here today. And if those who are here listening to this don't know you, they've never received the Holy Spirit. They've never come to really believe your truth. They've never been saved. Lord, we pray that you would save them. We pray that you would give them eyes to see and ears to hear. Give them new hearts to believe and conform them to the image of Christ. We pray these things in Christ's name.